All right, well, this morning we will be in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, just, uh, just a few verses this morning. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So while, these, while the words exception and exceptional are very similar, there is a difference between them. Exception would be something that simply differs from the norm or the standard. Thus, uh, we, you know, we, we, we like to say that we should not base policy or law upon exceptions, exceptions to the rule. But when we say something exceptional is, is exceptional, we mean it has a, a standout quality that, that can highlight something important, something powerful. Well, such is the text before us today. With Jesus as he hangs upon the cross and he interacts with the two men who were crucified around him. It is truly an exceptional moment, not because it entertains and delights us for a fleeting moment, but because it highlights the wonder and the powerful grace of God in the gospel. Christians from all traditions can be uh, calm, bogged down, and confused as to the exact nature of the, uh, of the gospel itself. How, how exactly does grace operate? Uh, who can be saved? How can they be saved? Is it enough to simply place one's trust in Jesus, or is more required for salvation? I remember uh, in college meeting a, a man who... Um, was uh, he, he, you know, he let me know uh, that he was a spirit-filled Christian as opposed to, I guess, the non-spirit-filled uh, Christians. And, and he also let me know that uh, unless uh, you are baptized and you cannot be saved, uh, unless you have the baptism waters of full immersion after you have made your profession of faith, you cannot be saved. And, and so... Uh, and I put to him the question of, well, what of the man on the cross who certainly was not able to do anything? And, uh, and he said, well, I, I, he said, I, I guess, you know, we can't really say about what happened to him. And it was like, well, Jesus said what was going to happen with him. So what's going on? Uh, what's going on here? And so our text this morning provides a powerful answer and an antidote even, to the doubts that can creep into our minds. There are three people who speak in this text, two criminals and Jesus. 
So we're going to consider this morning the, the first two men and their responses together, and then how Jesus responds to one of the men and how it reveals the glorious grace of the gospel. So verses 39 through 42, we see these two responses to Christ. And the first is a response that we can call the response of the hardened heart. To one side of Jesus is a man who is crucified and in physical agony. And as he sits there in pain, he witnesses the, the hatred being spewed out towards Jesus which excites his own anger and fury and bitterness and hatred in his own heart. And so he joins in the taunting of the crowd, jeering at Jesus to save himself and also save us while you're at it, if indeed he is the Christ of God. Here is a man who is hard in heart in his own sinfulness. He will not give, you know, he will not give any sense of that. He does not have any sense of the, you know, that the, the punishment for his own evil deeds is just. He's not going to utter out any hope that by his suffering, perhaps he is atoning for his own sins, as was expected for the crucified to say. No, like Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, who, when he was executed, determined to let everyone know uh, that he was still the captain of his soul, even to the, as the lethal drugs were injected into his system. No one was going to get the better of Timothy McVeigh. And likewise, this, the, this criminal on the cross is letting everyone know, and especially Jesus, that he is the captain of his own soul, even if he is going to shipwreck himself by his own act of hardness of the heart. Yet he feels that he still has the right to make demands of Jesus. Let's say that Jesus responded to the man's demand that he that he prove he, that he is the cross that he is the king that he is the Christ, and that he would come off the cross. Even if Jesus did it, under what condition would Jesus then be obliged to take him off the cross as well? Unless the man believes that Jesus is no more innocent than he is. And we have in this one man, in this one sentence that he utters, the very picture of the hard-hearted sinner. There continue many in this tradition even today. They maintain that Jesus is a man with faults and flaws like anyone else. That if he is some sort of savior, even though they won't tell you what kind of savior he would be, that Jesus must be obligated to save them even though they thumb their noses up at the Lord, at his law, or any sense of obligation to worship and obey their creator. They admit no sin, yet demand every salvation. In short, this man upon the cross hurling insults at Jesus is the very picture of the modern man. Matthew Henry on this writes that there are some who have the impudence to rail at Christ and yet the confidence to expect to be saved by him, nay, to conclude that if he does not save them, then he is not looked upon, he is not to be looked upon as the Savior. 
The response of the hard-hearted sinner is one that simply demands God make improvements to their material comfort in this life. And if there is an afterlife, well, that is expected to be thrown in as well because that's the job of God, to serve me. However, we are given not a second response to Christ that is the exact opposite of the hard-hearted sinner, which is we can uh, very uh, appropriately call the response of faith. It very, it very fittingly, literally on the other side of Jesus, on the opposite, uh, st- sitting opposite uh, to the hard-hearted sinner is the one who responds in faith to Jesus Christ. In fact, he rebukes the, uh, the, uh, the criminal who has just spoken. He, he too, is, is sitting in a similar position, literally. He, is, he also is a criminal crucified and suffering in agony next to Jesus. But rather than responding in hatred and anger at Jesus, he rebukes the blasphemer and appeals to Jesus to remember him. In reality, we we have in this man upon the cross next to Jesus the very picture of saving faith. It is often asked at the end of the day, what is, what is minimal to be done in order to be called a Christian? Must, must, uh, what must I do in order to be called a true Christian? Must we profess our allegiance to Christ? Must we add to that baptism? Must we add to that good works? Now we have to be careful here, for in examining the man's conversion, we, we, we may rightly draw principles concerning the conversion and salvation of sinners, but we must not come to the conclusion that this scene must be almost mimicked word for word. You know, this is the common problem of something like the sinner's prayer. I know I come from a church tradition that was all about the sinner's prayer, and I'm sure some of you may be familiar with that as well. And there's nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. It's a, basically, it's a form prayer of salvation that is often given out and basically walks people through how to become a Christian in a, a form prayer. It's fine. It's used a lot of times by, usually by Baptists or revival, revivals and things like that. There's nothing wrong with a sinner's prayer. What becomes wrong with a sinner's prayer is, is when it becomes a almost magical incantation that just like, well, unless you say the sinner's did you say the sinner's prayer? Like, well, no, I, I, what what do you do? I was on my knees before God and I wept, God, I need you. I've heard a lot of conversion stories like that. I don't know about you. I've heard a lot of people say they came to the Lord by God driving to their knees and them weeping and simply just saying, I need you. And they know what that means. They know what it means. What they mean is the gospel is like, but did you say the sinner's prayer? Did you say the words? And it's like, no. Okay, so that's that, and so likewise, we can draw principles from this, but we have to be careful that this doesn't mean everyone has to say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom or you're not a Christian. So we have to be careful here. Yet it is instructive for us to note particular components of how this man comes to faith, how he expresses this faith. First, we see that he fears God. He fears God. By his rebuke of the other blasphemy criminal, he recognizes the right of God to judge and, to, and that to speak against Jesus is to transgress against the Holy One. Secondly, he acknowledges his sin. The man declares that they are receiving the just punishment they deserve for their crimes. He has a righteous sense of his own sin. 
Third, he recognizes the innocence of Christ in his sufferings. Jesus doesn't deserve any bit of what he is experiencing. He is the, he is the innocent one. The Christ who is suffering on the cross for his people. Fourth, he appeals to Jesus. Specifically, he asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Now, what a statement that is. I mean, think about what a statement that is for him to utter there. Obviously, it, it reveals his faith in Jesus to save. But along with that, it reveals his belief that Jesus is the king and that he has a kingdom. That's huge. It is not abundantly clear exactly what this man understood about Jesus. But by this statement, he believes that Jesus somehow will, his life will extend beyond this moment, even in power, and that if Jesus remembers him, then he will be delivered. Everything will be okay if Jesus remembers me. That's what he knows. He believes that Jesus is the Christ King who delivers his people. The faith of this man, when you think about it, is nothing short of miraculous. Delroth Davis, he, he says, quote, it defies explanation. Here is one who believes in a kingdom he cannot see, and a king who presently wears a crown of thorns, whose throne is a cross, whose robe is nakedness, whose glory is a body shredded by Roman whips, whose court consists of caustic blasphemers, and whose enemies have apparently conquered him. But for this man, end quote, but for this man, the crucifixion of Jesus is not disproof of his messiahship, but merely a prelude of his kingly power. The faith of this man is nothing short of saving faith, as we like to call it. J.C. Ryle argues that this man who, who trusts in Jesus is the very proof that salvation must be all of grace and not of works. It must all be of unmerited favor uh, by, that comes from God and not anything we can do. He said the dying thief, quote, the dying thief was nailed hand and foot to the cross. He could do literally nothing for his own soul. Yet even he, through Christ's infinite grace, was saved. No one ever received such a strong assurance of his own forgiveness as this man did. And so from these two responses, we must see, we must conclude that how we respond to Christ matters eternally. It is a wonder that, that two men who were in the same circumstance next to Christ have such completely opposite reactions. One was saved while the other blasphemes. Yet it's not that surprising because it happens every Sunday. Two people come into the church. One is saved and one leaves blaspheming. Two people are raised in the same family. One believes, the other becomes a blasphemer. It happens all the time. 
But why, what, what's going on here, though? It's an old saying that of the, about these two men. That one sinner was saved so that no man would despair of Christ's saving power. Yet only one was saved so that no, no, no one would presume upon God's mercy apart from faith and repentance in Christ. But we must be careful here that as we're talking about faith, the importance of faith, responding to Jesus in faith and repentance, that we do not make the very common error that by emphasizing faith in Jesus, even calling it saving faith, that we mean that the faith itself is saving. If a man was sick and there was medicine in a, in a, in, in a, in a, in a hypodermic needle, right, that all you had to do was just inject it into him and he would be healed, okay, and you do so. And he's healed. And all of a sudden, they say, aren't, and all of a sudden we start praising hypodermic needles. Hypodermic needles save. They do all kinds of things. And it was like, okay, well, no, all right. It helped. It, it, it conveyed the medicine. But it, wasn't, it was the medicine that healed you. Likewise, it is not the faith that saves us, but the object of that faith that saves us. The grace that comes by the channel of faith to the sinner is what saves. And that is Jesus Christ. Not just something he gives, but his person. That is, he is united to us. Put it another way, the efficient cause of salvation, what makes faith saving, is not the possessor of faith. It is not the quality of the faith, but, as I said, the object of the faith. The man is not saved because he remembers Jesus, but because Christ will not fail to remember all those who trust in him. You and I today are pressed by these two men. On the one hand, we are pressed to, we are taught corrected that we must avoid a kind of doctrinal precisionism that demands a particular recitation of Christian orthodoxy before genuine faith can be awarded or recognized in a person. We're like, did you, I don't know, I can't call you a Christian until you confess the double imputation of Christ. I don't know, have you confessed the, the, the hypostatic union of the two natures of Jesus? Until you do, I can't say whether you're a Christian or not. The man said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? He says, you're with me to death. You're with me. And sometimes it's that simple. So we need to avoid a doctrinal precisionism on the one hand. On the other hand, a person cannot be completely ignorant or like the hard-hearted sinner to revile Christ. Yet an arrogance demand, arrogantly expect to be delivered. These men help clear the way for us. They ask the question, which way shall we go? What road shall we take? Shall we take the road of worldly anger and blasphemy against Christ to satisfy our own hearts, even if for just a moment... 
Or will, we, or will we, like the man on the cross on the other side, fear God, confess our sins, and place our trust in Jesus, the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, putting everything into his hands? Because that is what we do when, in faith. That's what faith does. Faith doesn't assure us of our trust in God or of our goodness or the certainty or the, all the things. It doesn't assure up the things inside of us. We, we have trust in God. Okay, We place fa- our faith in God. But if God forgets us, if Christ forgets us, we're lost. We have faith in God, but if God doesn't take away our sin, we are lost. That's true. So where's the comfort? The comfort is the truth of the gospel, the very nature and being of God, as uh, God the Father, God the Son, but God the Holy Spirit, everything we see about God and his covenant people all throughout the scriptures, which, which teach us that God will never forget his people. That God has taken the sin of his people away in his son, Jesus. And that God will never, God the Father will never, beyond a shadow of doubt, forget us. He would just as soon forget his own son as he would forget those who have been redeemed by the blood of his son. Just as surely as the Heavenly Father remembers His Son, loves His Son, so He will remember you and love you, Christian. So all of this we have said in anticipation of Christ's wonderful response here. But let us recall that Jesus being God in the flesh is is not required to save sinners. He's not required in the way to respond in the way he does. The sinner can say to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he can say, you don't deserve it. No. But the way of the gospel, the way of the cross, has opened the way for sinners. Such that when we make that appeal, Christ has committed himself. The Father has committed himself. The Holy Spirit has committed himself. The, the, the Trinity has committed to save all those who trust in Jesus Christ. Such that when we do come to Christ, though God is not obligated to, he has committed himself to in his mercy and his goodness, his unfailing love. And I'm trying to highlight all this just to highlight that we have no demands we can make. For salvation. There's no thing where we can go to God and say, but I did this, but I did that. There's none of that. It is all unmerited favor, which makes us very uncomfortable, right? Because we got to secure that thing. We got to lock it down. We got to get it, get it together. So that way we can get God to really make sure that he's going to do what we want him to do. And God says, you can't control me like that. But I have given you my son. And because of him, you can know for certain that when you trust in him, you are saved. 
and you will be saved, and I will never forget you. And so in this way, he reveals the glorious grace of the gospel in verse 43. To all of this, Jesus responds with a single wonderful sentence that is the delight of every Christian to read. As hard as the passion narrative is to read and all the brutal, uh, brutalizing of our beloved Savior is, is to read, the Christian cannot help but smile and rejoice when they read this sentence from their Savior. Today I say to you, today, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And just three things here. First, consider where they will be. Paradise. Jesus uses a Persian word meaning garden or park. It, it is, in essence, it is a wonderful place of glorious rest. This is certainly to be juxtaposed to their present place of physical torment and agony on the cross. It is further juxtaposed to what, the, what they would call at that time Gehenna, uh, the place of burning, hell, the place of torment, eternal torment. But it is also, I think, quite interesting that this is the descriptor that Jesus uses to describe heaven to this man. And we would do well always to remember that the new heavens and the new earth have not yet come, and we don't want to mix up the temporary situation of heaven for the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth that are promised in the book of Revelation. Um, that will come when the kingdom comes in fullness, when Christ returns. But we also must be careful, just because that hasn't come yet, doesn't mean that we need to think of the afterlife as just, we're just going to be floating around like disembodied ghosts in some ethereal cloud-like existence. According to Jesus, the best word to summarize what it is like to be in heaven is a garden paradise. Even though it is simply, even though it is disembodied souls that are there, it is like a garden paradise. What a comfort for us as we consider our beloved fellow believers who have gone on ahead of us to consider the joy and paradise that they are in, that they experience now. Not floating around with some clouds shaped into pews or some kind of weird whatever thing we got going on in our heads, all right? Jesus says paradise, the garden paradise. I think of, I don't know what you think of, I think of when I was in um, uh, went over when in college we went over to uh, um, when I was in Moscow and then our we ended our trip up in Russia. Uh, don't recommend going to Russia right now. But um, uh, but uh, 2003 it was okay. Uh, so we went there. But then we closed our trip. We traveled up north, took an overnight train to St. Petersburg, and went over to the Hermitage Museum, which is was which was um, the the Czar's um, uh, uh, the Spring Palace, and so they turned it into this huge museum. But in the back are all these gardens, these beautiful, gorgeous, you know, perfectly manicured gardens back there. And they're just, it's just gorgeous. It's, it's beautiful. It's lovely. It's right on the coast there, and it's just amazing, all right? That's the kind of the vision or picture that pops into my mind. And I don't know for you what a garden paradise uh, would look like for you, but that's more what heaven is like than floating around on clouds with harps. What a comfort that is for us 
when we near, as we near our own entrance into that place. And truly, we are nearer to it than we like to imagine, for human life is frail and fleeting. But make note of this, that heaven is not a bare building filled with bored souls. It is a garden paradise of rest, wholeness, and joy. The Bible likes to call peace. And because, and, and it, it, is, it is that way, particularly because of who will be with him in heaven. Jesus. Don't miss when Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said to the man, you will be with me. That is amazing in itself. That, that, that is the very essence of heaven is that Jesus is there. What joy must have burst forth in the heavenly realm when Christ himself entered and took his throne. And here we have the assurance of the believer that namely we are with Christ. We were with Christ effectively when he was upon the cross bearing the penalty for our sin was buried and then rose from the dead. We were with Christ. We are with Christ now by the mystical union we have through him, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, connecting us to him. We are with Christ, as Paul says, as he is seated presently in the heavenly places. He is with us by our communion, and we, Paul says, are with him in heaven. We are with Christ when we leave this life and enter the next, we will be with Christ forever in the kingdom of God. That thief on the cross, he didn't know what he was walking in. You ever walked into a place with someone more important than you? <laughs> Imagine that guy walking in with Jesus, entering into heaven, right? All the promises of God are ours, and they are yes, because we are in Christ and with Christ. So Christ's words to this man are his words to you today, especially you, dear doubting believer. Christ is with you today, and if he is with you, then you will be with him in glory, in paradise and when and and when we will enter they will enter into that glory is today now when i say today i don't mean we're all going to enter into glory today literally but rather immediately when our life ends jesus says they will enter paradise not after a timeout not after he drops the guy off in purgatory for a little while where he can burn off his remaining corruption. Not after a period of soul sleep, but that very day. There is no delay. This is the Christian hope. It is actually specifically what our Westminster Confession states. Uh, in, if you go read it, that upon death, our souls enter immediately into the presence of Christ the paradise of God for our souls. 
You know, we love the assuring promises of Romans chapter 8. That's when you're feeling down, when you're feeling you're doubting, you're wrestling. Go read you some Romans 8, right? That's what I do. Go read some Romans 8. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. We able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. All those promises were operative upon that man on the cross in a moment. All those promises came true for him. Right there, next to Jesus. This is a deathbed confession, as we like to call it. This is one who is entering in the, the hired worker at the end of the day from Jesus' parable. And this ought to give us hope, especially for those who are painfully lost in our families. Our beloved cousins and brothers and family and, and parents and siblings, even children. Give us hope for them. They may yet turn and be saved. God's power and grace are such that they can save a wicked criminal on the cross moments before he dies. This is not to encourage anyone to delay coming to the Lord in repentance so they can enjoy the pleasures of sin in the world longer because... Uh, you, you read any commentary on it, it doesn't take long to work out why, because we are not promised tomorrow. We are not promised a moment after today. We're not promised another second. And if we turn from the offer of the gospel today, there is no guarantee that we will have another opportunity. Take the opportunity when you have it. But for those who will turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, no matter when, no matter under what conditions, under in what depth of sin we have descended into, there is always power to save. Power to save even the darkest sinner. Should they die immediately upon their conversion? Or live a whole life of faith? Either way, all who place their trust in Christ will enter into paradise upon their death for no one will lose anything and God will not lose anyone who places their trust in the Savior. Let us do so. Let us hold out the word of life and that promise to those and let us not lose hope for those that we are praying for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the suffering of Christ. We thank you for this man on the cross who shows us the power of the grace of the gospel to save sinners in a moment, in a second. That your promises don't get, don't get more powerful as, as believers are more faithful, as if we're unlocking spiritual power somehow or spiritual benefits through obedience but that all your promises are operative they're all yes in christ and they're all operative in christ the moment we believe 
The moment we place our trust in Christ, we are secure. We are justified and adopted into the family of God, the pardon of all our sin, declared righteous for the sake of Christ, set apart for glory for all eternity. Lord, we cannot give you enough praise for the wonder of this grace. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, Father. It is emotionally exhausting to hold out hope for those we love who have longed stuck their hand up at the gospel, who have long embraced darkness and worldliness and the flesh and slapped the hand, the hand that holds out the gospel away time and time again, Father. It is hard. It is wearying. It is despairing. Yet, Lord, we pray that you would give us strength to continue to lift out, hold out that hand again. For we know it is not we who hold out the gospel, but it is your Son who holds out the gospel. That saving power is available, Father. And we pray, not only for ourselves, but we pray for those who are in our lives who are acting much more like the hardened sinner, that they would repent, that they would turn, that your Spirit would do His, his work, that they would turn in faith from their sin to Jesus Christ. If not today, that they would do it tomorrow. And Lord, may we be relentless in holding out the word of life always and entrusting the results to you, for you know, you will act, you will draw all those uh, unto, your, unto yourself who shall believe. You only ask us to hold out the gospel. So Father, may we be faithful, may we be obedient, knowing that your grace is sufficient for us and for sinners to save all who will trust in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's